Hi, thank you for coming out. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everyone, at this wonderful, magical place. Um, for the writers in the audience who think, ah, oh, someday I want to be where she is, you're actually having the best part of this. Um, I came here first as a writer, uh, visiting writer, and I said, how do I get into one of those studios, Maverick, that's what I want. And it uh, turned out you applied. And um, that was one of the best experiences of my life. I'm so, so honored, truly, to have been asked back again. It, it means a lot to me, partially because um, I worked on this book, A Reunion of Ghosts, for quite some time. And so I was working on it when I came here first as a visiting writer. And then I was kind of finishing up the first draft of it uh, when I was a resident. And I remember standing right here and reading work I had done that uh, day. Um, and yeah, so now look, it's a book. <laughs> wow. I'm going to be skipping around, but this is from the very beginning. From a distance, the tattoo wrapped around Delph's calf looks like a serpentine chain, but stand closer and it's actually 67 tiny letters and symbols that form a sentence, a curse. The sins of the fathers are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generations. Where that fourth generation? Lady, V, and Delph alter. Three sisters who share the same Riverside Drive apartment in which they were raised. Three women of a certain age, those ages being on this first day of summer, 1999, 49, 46, and 42. We're also seven fewer Jews than a minion make, a trio of fierce believers in all sorts of mysterious forces that we don't understand, and a triumvirate of feminists who nevertheless describe ourselves in relation to relationships. We're a partnerless, childless, even petless sorority, consisting of one divorcee, lady, one perpetually grieving widow, V, and one spinster, that would be Delph. So moving on, like many of the altar women in the generations before ours, we were named for flowers, but Lady is how Lily pronounced her name as a toddler and it stuck. V is as much of Veronica as anyone ever bothered to utter. And Delph is short for Delphine, which our mother thought was the name of the vivid blue perennial, but actually means like a dolphin. We don't mind the nicknames. You might even say we cultivated them. The flower names our mother picked never thrilled us. The funereal lily, the purple Veronica known for its ability to withstand neglect. Delph's name, that isn't quite what it was supposed to be. Neither the gods of flora nor the gods of fauna knew who had jurisdiction over me, Delph likes to declaim. No wonder I fell through the cracks. The truth is we all fell through the cracks and that's where we've stayed. Our father left when Lady was seven, V4, Delph swaddled. Our mother, well, that's another sad story. But life between the cracks isn't so bad when you've got sisters. It can be cozy and warm when that's what you want. It can be filled with in-jokes and conversational shorthand and foolishness, if that's what's needed. Or it can be silent and still 
which we tend to appreciate these days, given that in addition to everything else, we've grown ever more introverted, a touch agoraphobic. All of which makes us well suited to the project we embark upon tonight, namely writing this whatever it is, this memoir, this family history, this quasi-confessional. Our subject is the last four generations of altars up through and including our own. We plan to record all the sorrows and stumbles, as well as the accomplishments and contributions. We're sorry to say there have been many of the former, far fewer of the latter. This is especially true when it comes to our own generation. We are the entirety of the fourth generation. We're the last of the altar line. Where that's all there is, there ain't no more. And we've brought the family name no glory. On the other hand, we've brought it no shame either, which is more than certain preceding generations can say. That first generation, for instance, which starred our infamous great-grandfather, Lenz Alter, World War I hero, World War I criminal, genius and monster, the sinner who doomed us all. Still, he accomplished things, good things, bad things, Nobel Prize winning things. Not so the three of us. We've accomplished nothing, contributed even less, and we fear for the poor sap who will someday be saddled with our eulogies. What will this hapless orator say? Delph Alter, the youngest sister, never left a filing cabinet less organized than she found it. V. Alter, the benighted monkey in the middle, spent her entire adult life as a paralegal at a law firm where she drafted wills and settled estates, a deadly occupation. Lady Alter, the eldest, stood behind a cash register ringing up purchases of paperbacks, saying little all day besides thank you and do you need a bag for that, and romance, it's the third aisle on your left. Clearly, all three died of excruciating boredom. Yikadalva yikadash, that's all, folks. We've been thinking about our eulogies lately because this is not only our memoir, it's also our suicide note. It's true. We've set the date at last, midnight, December 31, 1999, New Year's Eve. We've always known we'd die by our own hands sooner or later. Sooner has now come a knockin'. Six months to a year, that's what V's doctor told her. We talked it over at dinner. We slept on it that night. The next morning we made a pact, all for one and one for all. If one of us goes, all of us go. Everybody out of the pool. We have a joke, well not a joke, a riddle. Question, how do three sisters write a single suicide note? Answer, the same way a porcupine makes love, carefully. Also tenderly and slowly and by pressing on even when it hurts. Um, and then they go on and they show you the chart that they keep on one of their doors, which you probably can't see, but it lists all the members of the preceding generations and how they all died, and every one of them died by suicide. Um, their great-grandmother Iris, uh, gunshot in her garden, great-grandfather Lenz, morphine in a hotel, their grandfather Richard, uh, he jumped out a window in the bedroom down the hall. Their Aunt Rose, cyanide in a men's bathroom. Their Aunt Violet, suffocation on her, in her lovely home in Long Island. And their mother, drowning in the Hudson. So this book is actually based somewhat on a historical family in which um, suicide was indeed um, prevalent. Uh, 
And the character named Lenz Alter, the great-grandfather I referred to, is based on the uh, German-Jewish chemist Fritz Haber, who won the Nobel Prize for the first synthesization. I'm an English major. I don't know words like that. Um, of uh, man-made fertilizer, staved off World War famine, won a Nobel Prize for that. He then tweaked that formula and came up with the first poison gases used in World War I, which he not only invented, but he advocated the use of against the um, actual revulsion of the German generals. Uh, but he went over his head to the Kaiser and got permission and personally deployed this horrible gas. So he's often known as the father of chemical weapons. Um, his wife was also a chemist. She knew what he was doing. She tried to dissuade him. She wound up killing herself, shooting herself in the family garden while their 13-year-old son slept. And he killed himself shortly after World War II. Before, I'll move back to the reading, but before um, Alter died, and right when the Nazis took over, he had been working on a, uh, for, uh, not a, for, a, pe a pesticide that was going to um, help farmers with their crops. Uh, the Nazis took over, he had to leave Germany. Uh, he died brokenhearted. He was such a German patriot. Um, and the uh, non-Jewish remnants of his staff took that pesticide, removed the odor that was designed to let people know they were in the presence of a deadly uh, agent, and it became known as Zyklon B, which was the killing agent in the concentration camps. So. Although we don't know why the son killed himself, it was shortly after the liberation of those camps and the understanding of what had happened. Um, I, I often wonder if he discovered that his father was involved totally inadvertently, totally unwittingly, but nonetheless involved in that as well. Um, so that's where this fun-filled book got its start. Um, so um, I'm going to jump to uh, 1999. The, uh, the book talks about the various generations, but now I'm back with the sisters. Um, and um, basically, the sisters have had a lot of troubles. This section is about the middle section, V, whose husband, um, I decided when I wrote this book, I would give them every single thing that could possibly go wrong in this world. I would just dump it on them and see what happened. Um, and uh, so V, she got cancer when she was young. Uh, she got it again, and it went away for a while. Uh, her husband was uh, killed uh, in a random gun shooting. Yeah, um, poor V. Um, so, all right, here we go. Over the years, we received calls from biographers and journalists and pushy PhD students requesting information and interviews about our great-grandparents. For the longest time, these calls have focused on Lenz. Recently, though, the calls have been asking about Iris, his wife. This is especially true of the students, Jewish women who rattle on about their interest in Talmudic hermeneutics and their readings of the Midrashim and the exegetical commentaries of Rabbeinu Tam vis-a-vis self-death. 
My thesis, V will say, mimicking their tight-jawed nasal voices sprinkled with Brooklyn, considers the degree to which Iris's suicide conformed with the agotic laws regarding self-death and apostasy. The grad students refer to our great-grandmother by her first name as if they're old friends. Speaking slowly, they explained to V that Iris was a proto-feminist who killed herself in protest against her husband's unconscionable promulgation of poisonous gas. With great feeling, they break the news that Lenz was a self-involved bastard who made sure Iris had no career, a bastard who then went off to the Russian front, abandoning his little boy with his mother's fresh corpse, which indeed is what happened. Uh, v never says much in reply. She doesn't point out that there was more than one abandoning parent in the Dalla mansion that day. She doesn't remind them that Lisa Meitner and Marie Curie each managed to make a go of their careers, that Maleva Einstein found a less showy way of coping with a difficult husband. She doesn't share her opinion that Iris was no feminist, no hero, just a mouse crippled by repressed anger and unrequited love for her doctoral advisor. Above all, V doesn't ask what the hell hermeneutics means. To be honest, we don't want to know. We're afraid that if we understand the word, we'll begin using it, and we'll start sounding like these women, or even worse, thinking like them. We don't want to become analytical or intellectual or nasal. We have no time to read up on which self-deaths this Rabinu Tam person considered a-okay, and which he considered no-nos. Once you decide to kill yourself, once you've made a pact and circled the date on your calendar, you just have to go ahead and do it. You can't conduct a little scholarly research first. You can't check in with rabbis or God or your dissertation advisor. Suicide is not for academics. I don't think I can help you, is what V typically says to the bubbly women. We didn't know our great-grandmother. Who are we, really, who is anyone to speculate on her motives? After some concluding politesse, she hangs up and primal screams. Feeling guilty for never taking a turn on the phone, Lady makes her a cocktail. A slow gin fizz, red as garnets, or one of the new martinis made with one of the new vodkas, sugary and juicy and blue, or orange, or green. Martinis the color of New York's perverted sunsets. We are, after all, the descendants of not only a mass murderer, but a dime maker. We too like batches of liquid color. Just wait, Delph says, soon they're going to want to write about us. I doubt that highly, Lady says. But you never know, says Delph. It seems evident that there are at least a dozen female Jewish scholars in Brooklyn studying at universities throughout New York and New Jersey who are working on dissertations about Iris. Why not a dissertation about us? What did she think, our mother used to say of Iris, that the world owed her a parade? Maybe the world did. V hasn't accomplished a fraction of what Iris did, and yet V sometimes thinks that even she is owed a parade. The simple fact that she continued to live after her husband died, isn't that parade worthy? Of course, she's not imagining a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade. She has in mind a Roman triumph. She, the conquering general, waving to the admiring throng as a slave leans forward and whispers in her ear, you are mortal, you are mortal, you are going to die. She is mortal. She is mortal. Really, she said upon getting her latest prognosis, only six months. To a year, her doctor said, and I only provided a prognosis because you pushed. I mean, who can really say? Prognostication is more art than science. It could be a month. It could be five years. But what is it really? Six years, six months to a year. 
They sat knees to knees in his office. He was drawing a bisection of the new problem area on the back of a prescription pad. Breast cancer without breasts, she said. You got to admit, it's impressive. It's not unheard of, he said. I've read about it in the journals, hmm, she said, and I thought I was special. He showed her his illustration, but not being visual, she shrugged. They'd known each other for almost 25 years, she and this doctor, ever since that first lumpectomy, and still they had trouble communicating. He said axilla, she said armpit. He said mediastinal nodes, she said, let's try that again in English. Well, no, she didn't say that. She said, I don't know what mediastinal means. It's, he pressed his hand against his shirt. Heart, she said, I have cancer of the heart. He looked pained, shook his head. Chest, he said. Your chest, well, God, I need a vacation. I'm losing my words. Only the monosyllabics, she said. You still have mediastinal. As she said it, she thought, well, look at me, having a conversation just as if it were any other day. And she thought, well, it is just any day. There's nothing unusual about a person being told they're going to die. I'm mortal, you're mortal. He, she, and it are mortal. Well, maybe not it, but definitely he and she. Definitely you and me. It's the most ordinary thing in the world. There are still things we can try, the doctor said. There's an experimental protocol I heard about just the other day that we may be able to get you into. He launched into an explanation. If, as research suggests, your tumors are a heterogeneous sect of ah. if your tumors are a heterogeneous sect of molecular subtypes, rather than she shook her head. Don't go all hermeneutical on me, she said. My body is not a text. It is, in a way. Three times, she said. I've gotten it three times. What's to interpret? I surrender. Victory is its. He argued, but not as wholeheartedly as she'd expected. She'd heard frustration and hopelessness. She shook her head again, and this time he nodded. He folded his hands together. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. There were tears in his eyes, but they never fell. She appreciated both, the tears and the no tears. He said, our goal then is to keep you as comfortable as we can. He hugged her goodbye, a hard, tight hug that made her remember how long it had been since a man had held her. Embarrassed by the depth of gratitude she felt at his touch, she broke away. She made her way through the waiting room filled with the ashen and the florid, the hairless and the bewigged, the resigned and the royally pissed off, the old and the much too young, all of them engrossed in years-old copies of People and Sports Illustrated, all reading of scandals unhappily resolved, of playoffs already lost, of the princess dead in a tunnel. Surprisingly, the plan to actually kill herself hadn't come immediately. Stepping off the elevator, then out of the lobby, squinting for a moment against the sunny June day, making her way to the bus stop, fishing inside her purse for her Metro card, she'd first imagined she'd be passive. She'd wait until her body quit. She imagined herself as one of those witnesses to a violent mugging who never dials 911, who just watches it happen. It wasn't until the contemplative state induced by a long familiar ride on a public conveyance that she realized true power lay in taking action. Action, that is suicide, was so obviously the right thing to do that the only shocking thing was she hadn't thought of it right away. She, of all people. Perhaps it was because she had no symptoms yet. Certainly she had no pain. Cancer was such a strange adversary, the way it hung around, biding its time. 
Now she decided that as soon as the symptoms began, the very first twinge of pain, she would take what people like to call the easy way out. But traveling up Madison, commerce going on that day just as it would after she died, she began finding fault with this solution. She found herself turning the prognosis into a math problem. If x equals six months to a year or maybe longer, then what day is x? It was impossible to solve. On the other hand, how simple to determine x if the problem were tweaked just a little. If x equals precisely six months from today, then x is what day? The bus made an abrupt stop. Passengers in the aisle lurched, and some cried out. They ignored them. She was not part of their community, the community of people standing in the aisle trying to keep their balance. She was too busy looking through her wallet for the five-year calendar from the bank. She was too busy solving for x. It made so much sense. Even the I don't even know how to say this out loud. Even the tutters and the would have to agree. If she said, this is why I write and don't talk. Um, if she solved for X, if she determined the precise day on which she'd die, she could quit her job. Why would she need any more income? She could start spending down her savings. She could live off her 401k plan. The penalties for early withdrawal be damned. Limit her life to a six-month span, and suddenly even a paralegal is rich. Nor would she have any need for the other benefits the firm provided, not even her Blue Cross, a person who knew she was going to die on a specific day. Feed already decided on New Year's Eve. She liked the idea of going out at the same time as the century, and it would be so much easier for Lady and Delph to file her final income tax return if she died on the last day of the taxable year. Such a person didn't need health insurance. Such a person wouldn't have to see any more doctors, not ever. She wasn't thinking just of her oncologist. She was thinking of her optometrist with all his, which is better, this or this, and her gynecologist with the soft, sad way she'd say every goddamn year. So are we still not sexually active? But mostly she was thinking of the dermatologist, the fleet of baffled men and women who for the past 10 years had been staring at her scalp trying to figure out why the chemo long out of her system, her hair had never grown back. All the creams and goos and pills and steroids, the application of thick, smelly tar and ultraviolet light, every intervention doing absolutely nothing. This stuff will put hair on your chest, the latest dermatologist had said, a little alopecia humor, as he wrote a script. But the stuff had put hair nowhere. In the bus, she turned from the window. She's just now pulled off her scarf. She's decided the hell with it. She balls the scarf in her fist. Ever since the second occurrence, the one allegedly cured by the bilateral mastectomy and the chemo, she'd been trying to reach a place of serene acceptance when it came to her appearance. Body is narrative, face is biography, the semiotics of these recalcitrant scalp. What are they saying, the scars on her chest, the deep na nasolabial folds by her mouth? What's the narrative? The first time V noticed those lines, she thought they were streaks of dirt and tried to scrub them away with a washcloth. Lady caught her at it and laughed. Even unattractive women, even women violently widowed and prone to cancer, feel waylaid and queasy upon seeing the first indelible signs of aging. Congratulations, Lady said, and welcome to the land of the invisible woman. If her body is a book, it's a horror story. Chapter one, I am born. Chapter three, I get cancer. Chapter six, I acquire jowls. Even so, 
It's her book, her story, so as not to interfere with the unfolding plot line, she's rejected even the smallest of palliative interventions. No face powder to take off the shine, no context to eliminate the red divots on her nose, no padded bras to fill out a blouse, certainly no implants. She gads about town, greasy face, flat-chested, and four eyes. As for the final six months of her life, she's determined they will be the six months of her dreams. Unemployed, she would stay home and read. She would go to movies. She would drink all day long, including first thing in the morning. Better yet, she'd never have to see the morning. She'd sleep every day until noon and start to drink then, or sleep until three. She could have six months of being a slob in a sloth, a potted plant with a buzz on. She would go to her final reward with a chest of an abused teenage boy and the hair pattern of an elderly man and her bone marrow sucked dry by her own turncoat cells, but she would be well-read and well-rested. So I'm going to jump ahead again, and she comes home. Home, finally, V stood in the foyer waiting until Lady, who was in the kitchen futzing with dinner, and Delph, who was in the living room watching the news, sensed her waiting there and looked up. It meant nothing to them that she was scarfless. She always whisked the scarf off as soon as she walked in. They just assumed they'd failed to witness the evening's whisking. V continued to wait until she had their full attention, until Lady had turned down the burner threatening to overboil the spaghetti, until Delph looked away from tomorrow's weather. So, she said at last, guess what reared its ugly head today? And Lady and Delph, who had allowed themselves not to think about cancer for a good, solid decade, knew the answer at once. And so they hang out that evening, they get drunk, which is one of their hobbies. Lady returned to the table with a new bottle of the same old cheap Zin. She twisted off the cap and refilled three of the stained glasses on the table. We each took the nearest one, made the faintest gesture of a toast, then drank the wine down in crude gulps. We were after inebriation. Lady put her glass down first. So, Vizi, she said, what are you going to do? V smiled. You of all people should know the answer to that. Lady refilled our glasses to the brim. We had to lean down to sip before we could lift them. You're being very rational, Lady said. I'm waiting for the butt, said V. I'm not sure I have a butt, Lady said. The window in the living room was open. We let ourselves hear the city sounds we normally filtered out. They were all made by vehicles, squealing brakes, backfiring exhausts, car alarms, ambulance science, and the very specific sound of a bus coming to a stop opening, then closing its doors and pulling away. I won't have to deal with ambulances, V said. I would never wish you a life dependent on ambulances, Lady said. We all got to go sometime, V said. And really, Lady said, it makes so much more sense to determine when that sometimes is, rather than just putting ourselves at the mercy of fate or time or the US medical establishment. This is V's fate, Delph said. V kept smiling. The fact that I have terminal cancer has more to do with the chemicals in the environment and the plastic in our food and, frankly, this glass of wine in my hand than with any kind of fate, she said. Delph said nothing, but she said it loudly. Look, V said, it's my death and I get to say why it's happening. We fell back into silence. We sat like that for a very long time. Later, the three of us lying across V's mattress, V said, I see my decision as emerging from a confluence between inclination and circumstance. Later still, I'm completely at peace, really. I am so remarkably fine. The room had darkened. 
Only the lights of the city kept it from going black. The sky was the color of ocean froth. I could spend a week at the beach, V said. Not Rockaway, I mean a real beach. The kind where the water is blue. Another stretch of human silence, another squalling of horns, brakes, sirens, hydraulics. I could go on a silent retreat, V said. I could sit cross-legged in silence from now until then. An hour or so, the sun coming up, Delph said, okay, here's what I think. Midnight, New Year's Eve, it's a good idea. We skip out before this whole Y2K thing. Meanwhile, we have about six months to write the book we've always wanted to write about the three generations. So that's how it began. We thought we'd write about Lenz and Richard and our mother, those deaths, not ours. We would have to work steadily and faithfully, V said. Evenings, Delph said. Weekends, said Lady. And full time after we quit our jobs, said Delph. Lady nodded, and if during that time you happen to change your mind, V, or, you know, maybe they come up with some kind of viable treatment, V smiled but shook her head. All right, V said, New Year's Eve, that's my deadline, and I do mean deadline. And mine, Lady said, have you not been hearing me? We're not letting you go alone, Delph said. There was the faintest note of resentment in their declarations. It was as if V were about to go off on the grand tour of Europe without them, and that's how easy it was. Sure, V exerted some effort trying to talk the other two out of it. It seemed like, I mean, it was the polite thing to do. What's your justification, she said. My sister's prognosis, Delph said. No, V said, that's my justification, not yours. Don't tell me what makes my life no longer worth living, Lady said. V stopped arguing. She couldn't say she exactly hated the idea. Companions, conspirators, a couple of hands to hold. We raised our glasses. We search for an appropriate toast. What's the opposite of a Lady said. Thanks. Thanks.